It's not that capitalism is evil. It's that the people who sit in positions of power seek to extract from everyone else. I'd love for you to meet Rukaya Adams. She's a fourth generation black woman from Northeast and North Portland, Oregon. She's a leader, an innovator, and a radical change maker. But there's a twist. She's doing it all as a chief investment officer in charge of trillions. That's no exaggeration. In this season finale interview, I'm so curious to hear how capitalism, an oft-blamed element for many of us in the dark moments of Western civilization, can be leveraged as a tool for good, a tool for the commonwealth in a world fighting over individual wealth. This is the Super Givers Podcast. Yes, it's funny how as an investor, I end up talking more about investing in education more than any other asset class, humans more than any other asset class, which is a weird thing to say. Something I I was going to say about the PSU speech, I thought that was going to be so controversial. Hmm. (laughs) And it hasn't turned out to be in Portland, per se, but... Uh, I'm going through a background check on something else and they watched it and thought it was radical and that I sounded like a communist and was like, all right, well, whatever. So what do you like people to know about you when they're, when they're introduced to you and your work? What do you like to lead with? What's important to me is one, people understand that the job that I have is a technical STEM based job that investing is math and that we're good at it, that I'm not just talking aspirationally or talking about social issues. We've financialized these ideas and done well, you know, following our our values and social responsibility. That's the thing that I would want people to know, um, that it's not just qualitative talk. We've demonstrated that investing for social responsibility is not a concessionary practice. So that's, that would be the most important thing. I feel like people introduce me as an activist. They interview, introduce me as someone who's working on equity. And what I wish they would say is she's an excellent investor. Yeah. And it sounds like also that investment, you know, economy, economic growth and social growth don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can actually be aligned. Right. And I would be even more specific. We often conflate economic development with investing and they're, they're quite different. Investing is an outcome of a growing and inclusive economy, right? So I would say investing for gain and investing for social cohesion and togetherness are not mutually exclusive. Hmm. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about your role in that so people can have an understanding of where you're coming from. Right. So I I am a capitalist and I invest money and I make money from money in the system that we have. And the challenge that we've had, I'd say, over the last 15 years is understanding the boundaries of capitalism, finding the places where we have to put checks and balances and where we have to push back on it. And one of the ways that I push back on it as an investor is by being really careful about the kinds of things that I 
allow to be investable assets from which I tried to extract as much value as possible. Here's an example. Housing. So before residential real estate was included in REITs in the 1980s, residential housing wasn't an asset class that institutional investors invested in at a large scale. And they certainly didn't expect double-digit returns from residential housing. So once residential units were included in traditional REITs, then price and rent escalation started to pick up steam. So one of the ways that I get to push back as the chair of the investment council and as a chief investment officer is to question whether or not we should be expecting equity type returns from residential real estate, right? Is it an an investment asset that we should be optimizing wealth extraction from? That's the way that someone in my seat can really transform our system and make it more equitable. For the people who are listening who don't know much about this, I want to make sure we, yeah, we hit on the point that feels like really relevant in terms of the impact you're making and how it's different than the way that most of us might be conditioned to seeing capitalism is the problem. But what you're saying is it's not necessarily, it's just the way people are wielding it. Right. It's the, it, it's that it, it's how they're wielding it and whether or not the checks and balances have the power to check and balance. Mm. Right. So, you know, housing is, is an example when it was introduced, when residential housing was introduced into REIT structures that are held largely by retirement plans and 401ks. What we were essentially doing is taking money out of one pocket and putting it into another or taking money out of the pockets of young people and delivering it to the pockets of older people. But there was never a, a, there's never been a check on whether or not that social outcome is what we want to achieve. Now we know it's the financial outcome that we want to achieve, but are escalating rents the social outcome that we want to achieve? And I think the answer now is no. And what, what we have to do is have people in my position begin to say, we should not think of housing as an equity. It should be more like a bond for investors. So that, that I just don't think we have enough checks on our capitalist system. It's gobbling up wealth and resources and extracting rent and wealth without returning that rent or wealth in the form of, you know, um, higher wages or commonwealth and parks or fully funded education systems. So we're extracting wealth, uh, commonwealth and delivering it to business people or investors as individual wealth. Yes. And the consequences of that are profound. Now, the way we had redistributed individual wealth was through through tax mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. But but instead of, of relying on taxes, what we've tried to do is pretend that philanthropy can do what taxes used to do, right? Tax revenue used to do. And we know that is that just is not the case, mm-hmm. even though we have probably trillions of dollars in philanthropy at this point. And so what are you doing to affect change within that that paradigm? A couple things. First is speaking openly about the places where there's obvious tension in our charitable purpose and the way we invest our money. Housing is an example. Student debt is another example. 
of where we invest in fixed income, and a lot of it is student debt. And we wonder why young people have such high costs of education. It's because investors like us are willing to loan them the money, and we don't force our tax systems to fully fund higher education. So uh, housing, student debt, um, I- I'm starting to think critically about things that sound good but aren't actually good, like clean water. Like people will hear that and think, oh, it's good. We want to invest in clean water. But do you want an investor like me to own your water system over the long run? Mm. Do you want me trying to extract double-digit returns from your need for water? I don't think so. So just really highlighting to people what kinds of assets we really need to think long and hard about financializing. And, and talking openly about where there's tension, how we solve those problems. Because the first step in solving them is transparency, understanding what's happening, who the players are, who can change it. So I think the role of Gen X in this transformation will be to be as transparent and open as possible. And it'll probably be subsequent generations that can transform it. I love that. And I'm starting to get a picture as you're, as you're saying that so eloquently. And what I want to know about is, as you said, being a, a fourth generation black woman from Portland, you it seems like somehow you have leveraged your position now as an expert to have a voice for so many that who may not normally have a voice. So part of that is that are you taking on that role of being transparent, of trying to have a voice for the systemic oppression that's gone on in this way? Yes, but I'm not trying to be a voice of protest. I want mine to be a voice of power, right? So I don't want to come to the capitalist table and have to petition anyone for a seat or or to listen to my issues. I'm arriving at the table saying, everybody sit down, we need to talk. Not, I hope you do this for us, or not, this is unjust. I, I've, I've, stopped asking and I've stopped petitioning and realized that if you control the capital, then you can control the conversation. So you're right in that I believe that there's a way to invest for social justice. And that approach begins with the person in control of the capital using her authority to set a tone of conversation among equals, not one where one group is petitioning in outrage. Yes. Not where it's a competition or, or a divisive place right. of tension. Right. Right. Or to the extent that there's tension, it's constructive. Yeah. Well, but no, what I'm go ahead. What I'm learning in, in approaching things this way though is that we have a routine of how we engage each other on social justice issues. The routine is the people in power ignore activists, ignore, 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 until there's outright conflict and the activists build enough power to force a conversation, either through litigation or, you know, through, 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 you know, through voting. Well, there's a different path. There's the capital path. And the capital path is, okay, 
we have the wealth to make this happen or we have enough wealth to influence the outcome. So now we're not asking you. We're saying sit down. We're going to talk about a different way. And that's that's what I think that's that will be the breakthrough for Gen X. Two things. One, we um we use capital for social justice. And two, we prove capable of working with anyone. Hmm. Right? I'm agnostic about what party someone is in or what what their belief is about our um, political economy, whether they're a communist or a capitalist or whatever. Like to me, those labels don't matter. In the end, if if the outcomes are just, I'll work with what you know, whomever or whatever. And how has that been going for you so far in this role? Uh, it's pretty treacherous hmm. because we 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 especially in the last few years, I think really sharp bright lines have been drawn about who is good and who is not good, who is racist, who is not racist. And I ascribe to a lot of those points of view in my personal life. But to the extent that I'm trying to bring to bear the power of capital to drive social change, I've tried not to frame it as in political party terms or within a political or economic construct term right um so it feels pretty treacherous uh, i can't even imagine what that takes in terms of your emotional nervous system regulation and bandwidth super stressful <laughs> super stressful the the other element in all of this is i'm discovering after being in it now 20 plus years is that so much of it hinges on my temperament. And um, it's not just, you know, a leadership temperament, but really trying to convey a victor's story, not a victim's story. Mm. And to really convey control and authority in not just how I carry myself, but what I focus on, the people I spend time with, the issues that I elevate, that really learning how to be powerful isn't just about accumulating wealth or influence, but it's a, a kind of tone and temperament that allows people to follow you, even if what you're talking about is very jarring or terrifying or scary or uncertain or new. That so much of it is is, is about leadership and and control of tone and temperament yeah and that control of tone and temperament must come from a sense of congruence you have to be you have to embody the strength the integrity the authority agency fill in the blank right that you are striving to have seen as a leader i imagine that's right and and that congruence that's exactly what my leadership coach Uh, helps me focus on. But that congruence for Oregon, one of the the circles in the Venn diagram is place, right? That the the thing that four generations gives me is an authority of place. Hmm. And we have a lot of information that's based on experience. We've had family connections for four generations. Nobody's going to be able to tell me that I don't belong here. 
or that I don't have a legitimate claim to the future of this place. Sounds like um, your your family or your experience, you know, being rooted in this place and the transgenerational force that your family may have been was was a big part of how you traveled this path. That's right, because it takes both roots and wings, as they say. Mm-hmm. And and to know that your roots run deep, then you can build strong wings. And I don't think I had this kind of clarity when I was a newcomer to a place. For example, I lived in San Francisco for almost 20 years, 16 or 17 years, and I never had that sense of rootedness hmm. that that I have here with my great-grandmother buried in the military cemetery in town. Hmm. And to know that, you know, uh, buildings in the Pearl have been renovated, but that my grandmother worked in a sweatshop in one of them. And it just, there's just something about place. And I, I do think that we, we like to think of ourselves as global citizens and that there's all this access to transportation and moving around, but the ultimate investment in power and influence is really where your feet rest upon the earth and where your home, you know, the land that you're the steward of for as long as you live in a place. So uh, the last part of that congruence for me to talk openly about investing and about social responsibility came with being in a place that I knew well, in a place that I love, in a place that my family had committed generations of labor to. It definitely has helped. Yeah, I I find myself recognizing that if you were, let's say, a 47-year-old white male in your same position, I wouldn't be so curious about how you had risen, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, And so I ask this with the reverence of understanding, or at least guessing, that the reason why I'm asking this is about expecting that you must have had to overcome exponentially more resistance, more adversity in rising to the place you had. Not Not that it is a surprise that you were there, but I want to know, so what else supported you to take this journey into what I must imagine is a largely patriarchal, white-dominated world, male-dominated world. It is. That is a correct description of it. You know, I will say the biggest challenge um, for Black girls, and that's different than boys, but for Black girls is that there really are no expectations. Mm. So it's it's it, it the the thing that probably was the most transformational was that I was in in places and institutions that um, broadcast ideas to me about alternatives to help me imagine some some other path you know it really was not negative things that were expected of me so much as nothing just nothing right right and so um yeah there were lots of people who who intervened at really critical points in my life to keep me off of a bad course, but the most influential people are the ones who helped me see what could actually happen, help me dream. Um, and I and I would say at this point in my life, to go from being someone with potential and dreams to someone who actualizes, that's actually a bigger step in my mind than, say, beating the odds and making it through college or grad school and into a position of influence. That's not that in my opinion, it wasn't that that challenging for me. The the bigger challenge is to go from 
someone who is well regarded to someone who has influence and has the nerve and the self-love and the vision to actually use it and not be afraid. So the big challenge for people in my seat is that you you make it through, you beat the odds, and then you get invited to the privileged cookout. Yeah. And you don't want to be disinvited, right? And so that leads to a, a lifetime of compromises and of hiding and denial and um, disassociation with the community that you came from. That's the way it has been in the past. I just refuse to do that. Look, I'm black. I grew up in Northeast Portland and North Portland. I'm not confused about where I came from and who I am. And those details about me also give me lots of special powers. So our generation, Gen X, I think is the first one to not have to give anything up to retain the success and so as a result, our, we can imagine a future that's more equitable, that's not quite so segregated with, with a few token successful people, but that there would be ways that all of us could be better off. So beautiful. And in that, I hear a bit of the Victor story that you mentioned, because that statement could easily become a victim story. I'm a, I'm a fourth generation Black woman who grew up in North and Northeast Portland. Right? And, right. and I can hear it in your tone, like it's actually because of that that I'm where I am. It's not because of that that I'm not where I am. That's right. And let me be specific about how it has helped. So one of the ways that I get information is that unlike people who are part of rigid social structures and families that are in positions of power and they drive into work and drive from some fancy neighborhood outside of Portland in their fancy cars, and then they drive back to their fancy neighborhoods and really never interact with the people in between. I, I live, interact with lots of different kinds of people. During the Occupy movement in Portland, I worked near the Occupy encampment um, in downtown Portland, um, and I would walk by the encampment and walk through it and listen to people. And people would talk to me, right? They were talking about the man and protesting the man. They didn't know I was actually the man. At that point, I was running a $6.5 billion fund, uh, investment <laughs> fund at the Standard. So the very people they were protesting, I was that person. Hiding in plain sight. Right, hiding in plain sight. And what it, what it gave me was that people were willing to engage with me as long as I was willing to listen and change, right, and take in what they had to say. Now, it took me the better part of five years to incorporate what they were saying into my investment practice, but I did incorporate it. And that willingness to listen and the ability to engage with lots of different kinds of people and not be afraid of them, that has helped in my investment practice. So years later, uh, when I took over this, the CIO job at Meyer, uh, we decided to sell out of oil and into clean energy assets. And a part of that decision was rooted in the conversations that I had around the Occupy movement in Portland. And to the extent that I influenced billions of dollars through the Oregon Investment Council, it all started with my capacity to listen to people, to not be afraid of young people who are willing to sleep outside in order to make a point. I didn't get in my fancy car and drive right by them. So in that way, 
the demographic information that so many people ascribe to being negative, right, to negative stereotypes, for me has been a superpower. And I've just gotten to a level of of experience that now I can take the things that I learn and my capacity to talk to lots of different kinds of people and translate them into wealth building opportunities that are socially responsible. Yeah. I was going to ask you about this quote I heard from another interview that you said something to the effect of economy can function as an ability for us to take care of each other. And it sounds like you've spoken to that a little bit. That's exactly what, you know, what the point of this whole complex system, I think we forget what the point of all of this is, right? We, we, two things we do, we, we enmesh our political system with our economic system, right? Our political system theoretically is a democracy. I know there are some caveats to that, but it's a democracy. Our economic system is a capitalist system. We often confuse those two. But in both cases, the democracy, the point of that is that each one of us has a say in taking care of, our, of each other and governing ourselves. And the capitalist structure is also derivative of the same values, right? It, our, our, our economy got big, but it started in small towns and community banks and neighbors lending each other money because somebody had a little bit of excess of cash maybe somebody needed a little bit of cash to grow their farm or their business. We, we've just grown large and complex, but the original point of it all was to use our collective resources to grow our common wealth. And we don't talk openly about the actual reason why this system was so effective for us early on. What we haven't had to do is check it, right, to put some boundaries on what can be financialized or what should be financialized. And is that that's sort of where it becomes political oftentimes, right? Like what, where can we regulate, where can we not? People with individual wealth don't want it to be touched. That's is it, right. Is that's, that what you're meaning? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that, but that's true from the very origins of our country. Here's, yeah. here's another example of where you know, being a black Portlander, a black female Portlander, there there is an advantage. So to be black in America and to be a descendant of slaves, we are literally, we were literally wealth. We were objects of wealth. So the advantage of having that history and the pain and resistance that came with it is that we know that we have to go from being objects of wealth to being subjects in control of wealth in order for things to change. We know what it feels like to live in underinvested communities. We know what it feels like to have wealth extracted from us in order to benefit others. And as we grow in positions of power and influence, instead of upending our system entirely, what we're going to say, what we will express, whether it's through politics or policy or through banking regulation, what we're essentially expressing is a value. We're saying our capitalist system is not meant to just own people and extract from them. We have a different set of values. We want our system to build commonwealth, not only individual wealth. And that's derivative of that experience, right? Mm. 
so and we we goof about it and and we poke fun at um um Sotomayor for saying she was a wise latina but she was in essence saying well there there are things you you get from a lived experience in being financialized or objectified and there's wisdom that comes with the boundaries of capitalism um that's derived from from a from a lived experience anyway so i i find that those experiences for me have been a huge advantage. Again, that's the Victor frame. Yep. That I appreciate so much. Yeah. I appreciate the way you say it because I don't get the sense that you're bypassing any of the pain or dishonoring any of the struggle. In, and that can be sort of an option for, yeah, for pain avoidance that, that I've seen in myself and other people that we can just sort of bypass and sort of like frame something as it's okay or it's a lesson or it's a good I don't hear you doing that at all you're you're finding a way to both honor and have it become a uh, a fuel if yes. that seems fair right and 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 that this conversation about equity and social responsibility those are not the final um outcomes they are just catalysts for changes in our capitalist structure or in our policy or in our government to more accurately reflect this desire to take care of each other. So the the victor's framing is meant to be catalytic, not not terminal. Yes. Right? Yes. I don't want to just be a victor. Yes. I want us to think differently so that we can express victory in the way that we live together in this little rainforest, right? It sounds like true empowerment. Yes. So if we can bring it down for people to integrate, I would love to know your impression of a current form of Commonwealth that is taking place, so like an example that would be really useful, and ways that the economy is moving towards or improving at taking care of, the, of each other and the greater good. Yeah. Well, one way we're we're wrestling with this Commonwealth concept is in education. So over the last 30 years, we've essentially privatized and individualized the cost of higher education, right? By, by right. underfunding colleges and universities, we've, we've transferred the cost to the individual. For mom and pop and ordinary people, we have taken away something and made from from the community and then made it a private debt. And the problem with that is that an educated population is a form of commonwealth. By underfunding education, we are making where some people acquire that wealth if they can afford to borrow for it or their parents can pay for it or they get scholarships. But then a lot of people don't and the consequence of that the consequences are profound. So this effort in Oregon to figure out how to fund K through 12 education and to wrestle with the underfunding of our higher um, our institutions of higher learning, we're wrestling with this concept of commonwealth and commonwealth being expressed through um, an educated population. So to me, that's one example of where we we haven't been able to frame it coherently in a public narrative, but I can see it playing out. Another example. Wait, I would just want to acknowledge that you may you may have done it. <laughs> you may have articulated <laughs> in a public way. Like 
(laughs) the way that we're fighting about it is like, oh, each person has a lot of student debt. Yeah. But we all benefit from young people having college education or trade school education or whatever kind of education they want. We all benefit from that. It's insane. So it's playing out also in water systems, right? Clean water, the clean water issue in Flint, in essence, access to clean water, safe water, is a form of commonwealth. And we're wrestling with the cost of that, how we distribute it on a national level. Should it be run by states? Uh, uh, Another example is uh, our environment. We're really wrestling with Commonwealth, and when people pollute the environment, they're essentially stealing wealth from the future, Mm. right? So this battle that we think of as a battle about one or two degrees and change in climate is really a battle about wealth. Mm. So to me, it's playing out all around us. And it's funny, my generation is a is a small one compared to the millennial generation below us and the baby boomers above us. And we kind of get lost in the fray where the Jan Brady's of Mm -hmm. (laughs) American politics. But what I see forming as we, as we hit our full stride professionally, I think we'll be the generation to call out these constraints that we're hitting as wealth transfers and really challenge baby boomers along with millennials to stop extracting wealth from subsequent generations, whether that wealth extraction is happening because of climate change caused by pollution and, you know, pollutive industry, whether that constraint is underfunded pension plans, whether that constraint is underfunded education systems, that we actually may finally wrestle with some of the constraints that we need to put on capitalism in order for our society to be more wealthy collectively. Mm. I love this thesis you have going here today, at least, which is about seeing the world as a, as a complicated, but really fluid. I don't know. I'm putting these judgments on it. I'm just really interested in the term commonwealth and how you're using it um, to contrast individual wealth and it's it almost seems like a mindset and a heart set that we're grappling with as sentient beings in a culture. Go tell it, yeah. Jesse. I, I would say it's even for Americans a little bit more patriotic than that, in that our founding was very aspirational, right? And we knew that there were these contradictions at the time of founding. There was slavery, there was um, xenophobia. There was all kinds of discrimination against women at the time. There's all these, you know, problems with our founding. But we had these aspirational documents, our Bill of Rights, our Constitution. Well, it feels for America like we we were created with these aspirational goals. And then there was a dot, dot, dot. And here we are in a multicultural, pluralistic society. And we either step up to the aspirations that were set out in our founding or we don't. Yeah. Right. And it's happening (laughs) right now. Mm. Um, So it's, I think this is an exciting time. It's a really exciting time. So what can the everyday person in their community do to promote Commonwealth, economic equity, 
whatever the term is that you want to use, like where are the places that we don't even recognize we have power that we can do every day? Yeah, I would say the biggest factor in promoting Commonwealth is a fully funded education system from pre-K through college. If every voter in every state said our number one priority will be setting up a bias for the future and fully funding education, then a lot of these, a lot of the subsequent fights fall off. So that would be the first thing I would say, vote and fully fund education. And I mean, including college education. The, the second thing uh, that we can do, I think, to promote Commonwealth is really focus on this climate, aligning policies with climate reality. Because again, in terms of living day to day, meaning the air we breathe and the water that we drink, if we do not change the way we live, none of the high level philosophy about equity can come to pass. It just can't. And then the third thing I would say for people, and this is kind of radical, it's to um, support equal pay for equal work. The reason why that's so important is that lots of families are headed by women, particularly African-American families. And to the extent that we want more resources to flow to children, for safety, for education, for healthcare, for whatever, it's really that that wealth will flow through working women. And you cannot say you want equity and you cannot say that you want to be anti-racist and oppose equal pay for equal work, period. So to me, those, those three things, education, uh, uh, climate adaptation, and uh, equal pay would be the three things I would say people could do. Yeah, I wrote down this quote that you may have already touched on, but education is a social good. Well, you know, I, I would add to it even more in that we have to think about our investment portfolios as including human investments. Hmm. And we we definitely think about our investment portfolios as including investments in ourselves, right? We think of our education as an investment or even to some degree, good health and taking care of our bodies and going to the gym as an investment. But we also had to think about investing in other people as a financial investment strategy. So that's the only thing I might add there is that, you know, your investment portfolio doesn't just include stocks and bonds. It also includes people. And I think what you're getting at in this whole conversation, you can help me maybe clarify this, is that while your skill set is very much about the meta strategy and the micro strategy of investment, part of your genius and your power is to tie in high level social impact. And in order to reach the people who really can benefit the most, I want to know what does the person who doesn't really care, right, about anything other than him or herself. Why should that person care about investing in other people? Yeah, the first, the first, yeah, I, I, this may be a nonlinear answer, but I'll try to, to get right. to the answer. Yeah. Um, the first is that investing is not transactional, right? You don't put $100 into a stock or a bond and then just get something back. All investing is impact investing. 
The question is, do you are you aware of the impacts that you're causing in your decision making? Right? You invest in Chevron and you might not see the environmental consequences right away, but people in Polynesian islands might see that, or people in East, you know, West Africa or East Africa might know that right away. So the first is to recognize that all investing is impact investing and no investing is purely transactional. It's all relational. Every dollar or investment you make is impacting someone else and it's having follow-on consequences. So if you accept that you're in a relational world and that things you're doing are impacting other people, then you also know things that other people are doing are impacting you. So just having the sense that we're in this closed loop where we're, we're, we're breathing the same air, I think is, is pretty important. Mm-hmm. But to ordinary people, look, I think investment is more and more akin to public health than we realize. So you can say, I don't want to help other people get health care. But if somebody in your community gets the measles or they get HIV or they get some other disease that maybe something that's communicable, something, you know, Ebola, it won't matter. You're at risk. Right. You have to invest in a healthcare system that that treats the herd or protects the herd and protects everyone, not just you, because we live in a we live in communities. So the sense that our balance sheet our investment portfolio is exists in a vacuum is uh, is an illusion. Just like our health doesn't exist in a vacuum. Just like our the water we drink is a part of a reservoir that we access with lots of people. So that that was the breakthrough for me is getting up to the trillion dollar level of investing. What you see is how relational your decision making is that you're not there is no occasion that you're just doing something for yourself ever and for people who are investing on a personal level what's your recommendation as far as education for people to start to learn about this interconnectedness and the impact of their of their investments right the first thing i would i would say is that um before before uh, people who are really thinking about changing the way they invest the first thing I would say is to really think about what matters to them, right? Because you can't do everything. You can't solve every problem. There are too many problems in the world and you can't fix them all. But an individual person or a family could really have a big influence on one or two things. So really being clear about what matters most to you um, is, is important. And the second thing is to not let anyone talk down to you. There's no concept in investing that an average person can't understand. And if the people that you're working with cannot explain something to you, they don't understand it. So that's the other thing I would say is everyone, I would say people with a fifth grade education can be good investors, period. Hmm. Like it's not above you. It's not too hard. So that I would really encourage people to be empowered and then figure out what matters to them. Because when you have empowerment and you know what you want to focus on, then you really, you can definitely do it. The hardest part is getting the focus. You've mentioned Gen X and it's sort of a generational impact, which I really appreciate because I'm a fellow Gen Xer. 
And it's, it's inspiring to think I fit in somewhere because <laughs> it's there's so much press about millennials and other generations. I'm of the mind that, you know, some of the healing that's happening, especially in humanity, especially, you know, in systemic oppression is multi-generational. It's going to take a while if, if humans are to keep existing. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what is the realistic hope that Generation X has in terms of an incremental step towards equity? Um, yeah, I, like I said, I think the, the the most transformational catalytic thing we can do is learn to be frank and transparent. Mm-hmm. Because we haven't had that. I mean, honestly, can you think about some of the conversations that we had when we were tweenies, how obtuse and mm-hmm. indirect they were? Yeah. This whole discussion about equity and the, and the frankness that's come out of music and art, that's us. So I would say just conditioning society to be forthright and honest, because we can't help each other, we can't love each other if we don't know each other, right? If we're not calling things the way they are, if we're not open with our investment portfolios, if we're not open with the ways that we are investing in not-so-good ways you know selfish ways so i'm hoping that our contribution will be uh normalizing uh transparency and frankness i love that that feels exciting yeah well you know it's funny we at this time we have some real challenges to transparency (laughs) um but but i think technology the technology that our generation created and millennials have really transformed I think will be the first step in that transparency. It's terrifying. It's, you know, it's threatening and liberating at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It feels really exciting. You said exciting earlier. I think that excitement is in how, how fast things seem to be moving. And that feels like there's some hope in that because we can actually do quite a bit. It's just a matter of which direction we're doing and right. And how we're impacting Right. And you know what? It's, what's crazy is I think this is the slowest it will ever be again. Yeah. Right. Buckle up. Yeah. <laughs> right. Rukaya, is there anything that we haven't touched in on that you wanted to give voice to? Um, other than to say to folks that investing with your values in mind, as long as they're clear and specific, does not necessarily mean that you earn less or you do less well. You can do both. You can do both. Beautiful. Now you are in a in a high position at the Meyer Memorial Trust and with as the chair of the Oregon Investment Council. Are there ways that that people can support you and what you're doing, or or where would you like their if anyone's inspired by this, where would you recommend they direct their efforts? I would love it if anyone inspired by this would look at their investment portfolio and look at the real estate that they have in the portfolio and look at the expected return on that real estate and then think long and hard about whether that's the right thing to do. If we all did that, Hmm. (laughs) um, then I think we would really radically change the way uh, we invest in real estate, and I think it would change how quickly uh, rent and costs go up for most of our neighbors. 
Well, Rukaya Adams, I am so grateful that you came on to have this conversation. And I just really want to thank you for everything you're doing in the world. Thank you. I appreciate your time so much. To check out more from Rukaya Adams, I recommend tracking down her TED Talk or any other interview or commencement speech she's given. I'm going to end season two with a challenge rather than a question. I challenge you to reflect on all the people, organizations, and systems to whom you give money. I encourage you to find one that doesn't align with your values and make a change. I'll take the same challenge and report back at the start of season three. Let me know what you come up with so we can all learn from each other. This has been the Super Givers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. You can help me out with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. The word is starting to spread about this podcast, and I so appreciate all your efforts. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next fall.